Good morning. It is Friday, April 3rd, and this is the Debrief Podcast. A big day in studio as we announce some pretty significant changes to the way this and other podcasts are formatted. Obviously, the coronavirus has pretty well shifted the way everyone does business, and while we won't be making any programming reductions, uh, we will be adding some new programming. Uh, as always, I'm joined in studio by Ted Baker. He is the host of Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio. Ted, welcome. And Good morning, your essentialness. Yeah, we are we are still here. We are still essential. Uh, the governor hasn't told us that we can't do this this podcast anymore, so we are just going to keep doing it. No, we're about 20 feet apart. As long as nobody yeah. sneezes directly across the room, we're good. Yeah. Uh, my, my first question off the top is, is you're, you're, still, you're still hosting your, your morning show. Uh, how is coordinating with guests uh, over, uh, over phone or over whatever uh, different sort of platforms you're using uh, to communicate with them? How has how the coordination side of that been for you? Not really a problem. I mean, we're doing all interviews on the phone now, and right. we were always doing a percentage of them that way anyway, so I just mm-hmm. get a phone number where I can call the guest, and it, it works out reasonably well. It's always it's easier, I think, to do face-to-face. For one thing, you can have a chat a couple of minutes beforehand and go over some ideas and <laughs> things, which yeah. we can't really do the way we're doing it now. But, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm in my studio by myself, so I have really pretty limited contact. I mean, I, I see a couple of other coworkers each day, and then I go home and do a lot of stuff from home. So, I mean, I'm, I'm limiting my contact about as much as anybody can, really, right now. People don't realize how lonely radio actually is. Yeah, I mean, we sit in a room and talk to ourselves. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so a couple quick programming notes um, off the top here. First, uh, the show you're watching now or listening to now is, is starting next week going to be called The Weekend debrief. Uh, We will be doing it just like this. Ted and I, Jackie and I, uh, Ted, Jackie, and I. uh, Gabe will be in and out, I'm sure, throughout the the period every Friday at 945. You're not going to see any major changes to this show, but if you watch on YouTube, uh, there will be a visual overhaul that happens. It's going to look a little different come next week. Uh, Second, we are launching a new version of this show called the, The Daily Debrief, which is going to dive into individual stories that we're working on. It's going to be a little shorter. It's going to be between 10 and 15 minutes long. It's going to do all of the things that this show does, meaning it's going to tell a quick story, give you a little bit of analysis, but then it's going to get you on your way because uh, sitting here for an hour every Friday, uh, not always the easiest thing for people to uh, schedule around their lives. And if there is something that you want to hear about, you probably don't want to have to scrub through you know, 45, 45 minutes of audio to find the spot where that begins. Um, so each morning when you wake up, check out our homepage or go to wherever you get podcasts. Uh, you can also find the link to those places, uh, right on our homepage and a new episode will be uploaded every single day between three and four in the morning. So no matter how early of a riser you are, uh, you will see a new episode on our homepage. Another change, uh, In addition to the new podcast, we're launching a weekly newsletter called The Sunday Insight. A big thanks to Gabe for his work on that in the last two weeks. Um, That will be coming every, as the name suggests, every Sunday morning. Sign up for that uh, and more information will be on our homepage later today, Friday. So if you're listening to this on Saturday or on Sunday, it's already there. Jump online, sign up. It'll be in your inbox every single Sunday morning. It'll basically be a rundown of of the the major headlines of the week and also is going to incorporate a lot of the things that 
get lost and and Ted is sitting across from me nodding his head because he knows if you if you host a daily show or if you you are in the news business you know how quickly things get buried um and unfortunately with this 24-hour news cycle that we're living now within like two days it, it feels like some pieces of important news are already old news and they're already forgotten so we're going to try to um reverse engineer this thing and try to force certain things uh, uh, to be to be consumed in a, a variety of different ways. And also, for the last like two and a half years, I've been getting emails from people saying we should do a newsletter, we should have something like this. And I realized that it's something that uh, a certain type of news consumer really likes and really enjoys. Um, we haven't really had the manpower to do it in the past. Um, I'm not saying that we do have the manpower to do it now, but I'm saying... I myself am am going to uh, bite the bullet and just uh, deal with it, and and I and Gabe will be working our our little hearts off, uh, putting that thing together every weekend so that that can land in people's inboxes come Sunday morning. Well, one of the things that we're seeing on our website, FingerLikesDailyNews.com, is there's so much news that you put a story up and. An hour and a half later, it's pushed off the front page exactly. onto page two, and, and people don't even see it. Yeah, so and, I think that's a great idea. And the funny part is, is like, sure, and, and I used to fall into this. I fell into this category myself. For the longest time, I thought to myself, well, God, we can just – why don't we just add more stories to the homepage? Why don't we just – instead of you know having, having 25 stories, why don't we do it 35 or 40? And it's like no matter what you do – eventually important stuff is getting shuffled. It's yeah. getting, and you just, you know, you want to be able to get all of the important things. And I think a week is kind of the, the right time frame because it really does, like, that is one of the things that I've noticed, especially in the last, like, year or so. It's like, you know, by the time we get to Thursday, Friday, the stories that were literally, like, A1 headlines on Monday or Tuesday even sometimes, they're gone. Yeah. They're just, they're deep in the recesses of fingerlakes1.com or Finger Lakes Daily News, and you can't find them, and you're like, okay, come on. Like, I, I need to, and search is a really, and I understand, like, you know, on the, the the true internet consumer is going to say, well, gee, you have a search feature. That's fine. People can just search, but the the news consumer does not search well, the yeah, way some people think. Right. It's an instant society. I mean, we've had this debate for years and years and years. I called it uh, top center-itis. You know, everybody <laughs> wants everything on the website to be front center. You can't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. something has to get to bump to page two eventually. So all of those things uh, coming up within the next few days here. Uh, the, the new Reimagined Debrief uh, podcast, so we'll be uh, uploading uh, not a test episode, but a, a trailer uh, later this afternoon. That will be in the Debrief feed on uh, by this evening. Now, um, will any of these visual enhancements involve making me look better? They Unfortunately, they will <laughs> not make either one of us look any better, and we will have to continue sitting here looking ugly All right, I'm until... You know, until we decide not to anymore. But um, so you and I were we were really having quite a conversation before we started here about uh, data and how it's I've been focusing a lot lately on how the information has been getting disseminated. Um, You were focusing more on the I want to say the the way that the way the data has been framed, I guess. 
Um, what have been your big takeaways, say, for the last five days and just watching the numbers, whether we're talking about statewide data across the country or even county by county data, which is obviously where we in the local media have been, been focusing? Well, what happened? I mean, when this first happened, uh, I was pretty skeptical. <laughs> uh, I admit at this point I underestimated the extent of this outbreak. I still think, I just kept hearing predictions that were very dire, and I kept saying to myself, well, what are these based on? When the governor says it's going to be this bad in this many days, where's he getting that from? So I started searching around to try to find some sort of, because I said, the question that came up on the show the other day was, is there some epidemiologist out there or someone who understands how viruses spread who's been able to put together some kind of a model. And so I found this site. It's covid19.healthdata.org. I believe it is associated. There you're seeing it on your screen. uh, With the University of Washington. And so they've done modeling through the United States and through every state. At the top, you'll see it shows you uh, when, when they close businesses, when they close schools, when they put travel bans in effect. In the case of New York, they have not. And so then further down, you see a graph, uh, the good news of which is if we continue to do what we're doing in terms of social distancing, you'll see that the peak of this outbreak comes in only a few days, in about six days from now. And you'll see that very early in May, that curve flattens down to nothing and means we're essentially over. Now, having said that, a couple of caveats. One is the possibility of a further outbreak. Uh, What the site says, there's an FAQ page that goes along with these graphs that you're seeing, and what the site says is we do have to be careful about a second outbreak, possibly in the fall, but if we can ramp up our testing ability, we can do what we usually do in these cases, which is find where the outbreaks are, take measures there, and isolate them. The other bad news, if you look at those curves, is that when we do hit the peak in about six days, we are going to be tens of thousands of hospital beds and ICU beds short of what we need. Uh, The data on that site is, as of their last update, was two days ago. Uh, They promise another update tomorrow that that might change that curve. But So there's some good news in there and and some pretty dire news. But at least to me, that's that's data-driven and not panic-driven. And that was my complaint at the beginning of this, was that so much of what government officials were saying and so much of what people were saying on social media was not factually driven, but was fear-driven. Yeah, I mean, I I guess one of the things that that I take away from what we're seeing on the screen right there is, is of course, you know, again, like Governor Cuomo said uh, earlier this week, all of, it's all modeling. It's all you know, some form of, of prediction one way or another. Um, the, the thing that I get really confused about here, and, and there are a lot smarter people out there um, than I, but okay, so focusing in on the curve, um, this is essentially saying that, like you said, it's over by May 1st. How on earth do we get from a point where we are peaking in, say, six days or so, basically by the end of next week, um, and at the same time, basically, I mean, according to this, by June 1st, we could be 30 days 
removed from having basically right. any effect of the, of this. Well, it just it boggles my mind. I'm, I'm not, not really sure how expert. that works. I'm not a statistical expert, but I think what it means basically is that you reach a point, and I think this is how, that's what they were talking about when they were saying flattening the curve. That's how these outbreaks generally happen is at, at a certain time. Once you get past all these tens of thousands of people who have it, they're going to, hate to put it this bluntly, they're either going to get better or die in a span of about two weeks. So you reach a point where everybody who's who's going to get it has kind of had it. Right. I mean, that's how those curves tend to go. It's not just a steady downturn, but we hit that peak, and then it's roughly a two-week period where you're either going to get better or you're going to die of the, the covid and so once you get past that big wave of people, th- there's that natural downturn. It's and, interesting. And again, that's me. You know, I'm no expert, but that's my best understanding of how these things work. And I wasn't able to get down far enough on the on the graph so that you could actually see it here. But I'm looking at the I'm looking at this particular website, which we'll link in the show notes uh, beneath the beneath the video or above the video or with the audio. And this link. is just one site that I found. There's probably others out there that and and it's only <laughs> as good as the data coming in. I mean, the more testing that becomes available and the more data becomes available, the better their modeling can be. Well, it seems like so this basically suggests that the fatalities per day projected between April 9th, 8th, 9th, and 10th essentially falls in the range of 524 to 1,090. Right. With it basically projecting in a specific average of, say, 800, basically 800 to 860 deaths per day over, right. say, like Which a, is about where we are right now. I mean, that, that represents a, a slight increase in the next five or six days till we hit the maximum number of deaths and, then and it, hospitalizations somewhere around April 9th or so. It's interesting. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Um, one of the th- one of the criticisms that I've heard so far of all of these curves is that a lot of it's based on uh, data collected out of out of China, and and I've at the same time heard a lot of skepticism about uh, how reporting has has been handled in China. So I right. wonder our, our if, intelligence agencies have said in the last few days that they don't believe the data, that right. they, they believe it was underestimated. And uh, to, as best I know, this data that this site uses for each state is based on just what they've learned in that state. Yeah. So if you scroll down, for example, on uh, if, you, if you look at California, their projected peak, the last I saw, was like a week to 10 days further out. I'm not sure exactly why. I haven't gone into great depth. I've mostly focused on New York. But it it projects different states and different peaks depending on what measures they took at what times. And it's interesting because their 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 peak also appears to be much lower. Right. By this measure where for whatever reason because remember when we started talking about COVID, you know, here in the United States, it was Washington California, New York was way down in the discussion. New York City has become the epicenter. At, at some point, historians will learn why. You know, whether it was somebody coming from China into New York or people that were exposed in California or Washington or how that happened, I don't know. Well, one of the... I, I've been saying for about a week and a half now that, like, when all of this is said and done, we're going to be able to look at basically a, a list of, say, the top 15 
uh, airport cities in the U.S., and we will be able to isolate those as the places that were hit hardest. And it's not difficult to sort of, you know, imagine why or what circumstances got us there. Like when you have people uh, traveling to and from and in and out like that, you're going to have these this these sort of micro outbreaks. So here's a fascinating question for the future. You and I being the big picture trend watching people we are, <laughs> is this going to lead to a resurgence in rural population? Are people going to want to get away from big crowded cities? Well, it would suggest that it would be the only way that some of these rural communities that we watch so closely and we cover could exist in another 10 or 20 years. Because guess what this has done? All the, the people who say I'm a, I'm a doomsdayer because I say that rural, rural communities like, say, Romulus or, you know, Lodi or, you know, pick your poison, whatever it may be, Rushville. Um, I've said repeatedly that in 10 or 20 years, they, they, they will essentially be bankrupt, not, not because they, they, you know, everything costs money. Everything costs money, and the cost of operating any municipality, large or small, is increasing exponentially without pandemics involved. And now you're and going with to... a decreasing population base to exactly. tax, yeah, to raise the revenue you need to exist. I mean, this is either going to be a, a, a boon for these places, or it's going to be sort of the final nail in the coffin. I mean, you know, we were talking before we started here how, like, you know. Seneca County, as an example, is probably going to be staring down a, a budget deficit of, of a significant amount come next budget cycle. And I think every municipality is in the same boat. Canandaigua City Council last night was talking about this very fact that, you know, to to shut down these economies, which are tourism driven, has short term and long term effects, because even after the economy reopens now, you're not going to have, you know, think about all the studies we've seen about the Finger Lakes over the last, say, two to three years, all these tourism experts saying, hey, look, like this much of the of the of your tourism is coming from four to six hours away. This much of your tourism is coming from more than that away. And you're talking at the end of the year about billions of dollars that will not be coming to the Finger Lakes now. That is going to have long-term impacts that are going to be felt way beyond this summer. Oh, yeah. And by the way, you still have the short-term implication, which is despite the, the relief that has been promised for small businesses, many of them are worried about even being able to get to a point where they can file for relief because it's been it's already been two or three weeks. And, and it's so fascinating to me because like this... It's almost like this has demystified what running a small business is like and how running a small business is not much different than uh, all the terrible damning reports we see about how individuals are really poorly uh, prepared for an economic loss of some kind. Small businesses are, are highly leveraged in a lot of cases, and they do not have a lot of working capital. And, and they are, you know, say 30 to 45 days or maybe less at any given point from just not being able to operate. I think one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of marginal businesses that will not recover, especially in the restaurant segment. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of restaurants that will quietly close during this and will never reopen. Now, I guess the trade-off is hopefully that means more customers per 
remaining restaurant that's left behind. But we, yeah, we'll be talking about the economic fallout of this for years in the way that 9-11 changed our lives forever. I think COVID will change it in much more fundamental ways for probably a longer period of time. We're still going to be 10 years from now coming back to questions about the COVID outbreak and how we dealt with it and how we didn't deal with it and the way we live, the way we work, the way we go to school, the way we shop. All those big trend things that we're, we always like to talk about have gotten really thrown up in the air now. And it's interesting too, like because... I really am genuinely curious. We talk about the Finger Lakes as if it's this big macro thing. And for these local economies, it is a a large, broad, overarching thing. But, you know, when I look at sort of what tourism and travel and, uh, you know, vacations, what those things are or have how the way they've been identified, say, the last, you know, 20 years or at least throughout all of my life. I genuinely wonder if the definitions of those things are going to also change moving forward because I wonder, you know, say the, and and this is sort of personal on my side, but, you know, I'm getting married this fall and we have a a number of guests who would be, in theory, coming from outside of New York State. And I genuinely wonder, even if we have mass restrictions lifted, how many people are going to be comfortable getting on a plane and traveling, you know, a thousand miles for you know and getting in that in, in not as space. many is this a great time to be you know in the the car rental business maybe because i i i could foresee a scenario where people don't travel as far but perhaps they travel more in sort of the regional sense well that could be and and of course tourism and all these things are predicated on disposable income <laughs> mm-hmm. who's going to have disposable income there's going to be a lot of people that are not going to probably be able to afford to travel. And then the other question is, how big a scarlet letter is New York going to become? Even when this is over, Mm -hmm. in this era of widely disseminated misinformation on social media, how many people are going to be scared to come to New York even when we tell them, hey, it's safe, we're all clean, it's over, doors are open, come on back? How many are going to go, "Eh, I think I'll go somewhere else this year? I think it kind of depends because I think the the branding. I mean, on one hand, I'm I'm looking at all this and saying, listen, when all is said and done, no matter how many people die in New York City, New York City is still going to be New York City. Sure, it's still going to be the most traveled to place probably in the world, or at least one of one of them. Yeah. Um, upstate New York, I think, is going to continue for a lot of different reasons. Is going to continue being this thing that people see as being detached or different. And at the end of the day, my my concern on the economic side is how long sort of the recycling takes, right? Because I think that we're we're in the the downside right now, or we'll be entering the downside when this is over, of this sort of economic recycling, where you are going to have businesses that go out of business. The question becomes how quickly do new businesses sprout up in its place? Because there will be a demand. It's just a matter of getting, and it's really unfortunate because a lot of the businesses that wind up closing permanently are not going to close because they did something wrong. It is going to be through no fault of their own. So that, I think, is the thing that the state has to sort of reckon with. And how quickly can it allow for, <coughs> excuse me, um, 
How quickly can it allow for that regeneration to occur? Well, that's why I hope that curve on that website is correct and we're out of this sooner than later because I've said, and, and for, for your business and for our business that are advertising dependent, um, I'm hoping, and I'm sure there, there will be a pent-up demand. Uh, we're all going to get these stimulus checks coming in. If we get those checks in two or three weeks and the restrictions are lifted in, say, four then a lot of people are going to have some money to spend, and they're going to want to spend it. I, like I said, uh, when this ends, make your restaurant reservation real quick because restaurants are going to be jam-packed for a while just because we can. But then what's going to play out down the line is back to the political argument because all of this benefit is going to have to be paid for somehow. Mm-hmm. We get a stimulus check this year. It means somebody's got to pay more taxes next year, and there's going to be a huge left-right political debate over all of the, you call it, I think, a reset. And there, it's a reset in a lot of ways. We've, we've seen, you know, a, a, the, one of the biggest massive social programs ever enacted in the history of the United States and done so in a bipartisan manner. So it, it's going to be interesting how some of the old political arguments shake out. Are we going to need further rounds of stimulus? Uh, if so, are... Are the pro-business elements on the right going to agree that that's okay? I mean, it'll be really pretty fascinating to watch how this all shakes out. How my my question is, how different is the rebound from this going to be from the rebound during the recession? Right. I am very curious to see what how say 2007, 2008 to 2012, 2013 looks in comparison to 2019, 2020 to 2022, 2023? Well, I think the big difference, I, I don't think we saw job losses in 08 on any sort of scale compared to what we're seeing now. I mean, we had the first week after the restrictions were put in place, 3 million people One percent of all Americans, not working Americans, but all Americans, period, one percent filed for unemployment. And then another 6.6. Right. I mean, so you've got basically about one out of every 30 Americans has filed for unemployment in the last couple of weeks. So that's I think the the nature of work is going to be another thing that we look at. I think you're going to see a lot more businesses when they see their workforce at home saying, why do I need a big office? Why don't, you know, let's say I'm an insurance agent. Do I need a big office or can I have a bunch of independent contractors working at home? And on the other side, will some people want to work at home and be more reconnected with their families? I I think the way that we work and the way that we want to work may be something that changes fundamentally because of this. I think there's a big opportunity on that side, honestly, because I think in a lot of ways it is simply more efficient uh, to work in the ways that some businesses are working and operating now. Um, I and, think so. And, you know, the other thing, too, is is like, you know, I, and I use the news business as an example. Um, you can look at some of these newsrooms regionally or, you know, even across the country, and, you know, even the smallest of, of newspapers and organizations have – frankly, way more space than they need. It's just because 30 years ago, they needed that much space. And odds are a lot of times they haven't, they haven't relocated. They haven't downsized on the real estate side. Um, you know, I think that's sort of, that was the looming question anyway, 
who is the the one, you know, we have a lot of large spaces. Look at shopping malls. Look at, you know, all of these, you know, vacant commercial spaces that we already had. And I think that's just going to be accelerated now in the next two to three years. That said, you know, I think to the other end, it presents an interesting opportunity to start doing something more drastic and and more pronounced with these spaces. And I am not... I don't classify myself as as an environmentalist per se, but I would not mind seeing a lot of a lot of communities look at just raising significant portions of its vacant commercial space and just going back to going back to nothing. You know, you look at what businesses are looking for and I'm not talking about historic structures. I'm talking about the massive sprawling commercial spaces that were developed in the 70s and 80s to to meet a demand that just doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um you know, leave the historic stuff, get rid of everything else. I think of the plazas, if you're in Geneva, along 5 and 20, the plaza next to the old tops, the, the where Cherry Bundy has, has recently been. Um, for as, I'm 30. For as long as I have been on this planet, that, that little, not little, that large plaza has been vacant and decrepit as long as I've been alive. And it hasn't shown any signs of life. I haven't even seen a news story since I started working in the news business seven years ago that suggested anything is being done in right. that space. So this is like just and But here's what happens, and that's the the, the, the problem is whenever there whenever there's an upturn, business gets overly optimistic and overbuilds. So I, I I understand what you're saying, but I can also see a scenario where things return to normal, unemployment gets back down low, the stock market does what it always does eventually and goes back up, and business says, yeehaw, good times are here again, let's build some more strip malls. Maybe not. Maybe this will bring some fundamental change in thinking, because I think the, the average... Not so much retail. I mean, retail is going to need the space it's going to need. But I'm thinking just in terms of the example I came up with is an insurance agency, a basic office scenario. Why do I need a big office with 10 cubicles if my 10 agents can work from home and we can do Zoom meetings? Then maybe I need a little one-room, you know, 20 by 20 storefront with a receptionist and everybody works remotely. And let me just say, and this is going to be the question that I ask every business owner who had folks working remotely throughout this entire thing. What happened to productivity? Because I think historically there's been this major reservation among business owners and managers um, that there's going to be this significant fall off in productivity if you have if you allow people to work from home. And I just don't think that the data is going to bear that out. No, I don't think I mean, so either. I people, mean, if anything, you I, I feel like especially we've been doing a lot of remote stuff lately. I mean, we're working between states right now because yeah. certain members of our team are not in New York right now. And they're, they're but you're more you're communicating more. You're you're doing you're it's like you're overcompensating basically. And that has actually allowed for better productivity than we've ever had before. It's going to. It's going to take a loosening of the reins by business owners. They're going to have to trust, instead of report to the mothership and work from 9 to 5, it's going to be, here's what I need you to accomplish this week, and I don't care if you do it at 9 a.m. or at 11.30 p.m. I don't care if you do it with the cat on your lap, as long as you do it. 
And and I think that's what that's where I think it, the like like I said about the workers having that appeal. I think it it might be appealing to workers to be able to say, okay, I can get my job done when I need to get it done, and not punching on a time clock. Certain businesses that's not going to work. I mean, that's not going to work for Walmart. No. You got to go to the store. You got to work your shift when you work your shift. But I think certain types of businesses can adapt to this reality and make it work both for the business and for the workers. It doesn't apply in the service industry, right? Like it's very clear right. that it doesn't I mean, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't translate. server is going to have to report but to work. Listen, like, you know, I I look at the way, you know, sort of a lot of my friends who work in normal sort of very stereotypical office environments, how they've been working over the last and it seems to be universal that that folks are just, you know, they're enjoying it more. They think it's easier. They're actually more efficient. They're getting more done, even if they're not telling their their bosses or their right. managers that they're getting more done in a shorter amount of time. Because and if I want to take thirty no distractions. minutes off to watch a TV show, right. or whatever, I can. If I want to take a walk around the block to clear my mind, I can do that yeah. as long as I get done what I need to get done, and and without the distractions of the office, the coworker who wants to show you the latest thing on YouTube, mm-hmm. the phone ringing with calls that you don't really need to take right now. I mean, that's what what I've been doing a lot over these last few weeks, my routine day-to-day administrative stuff. I can do it from home, mm-hmm. but I can do it on my pace, and I can do it uh, you know, with a beer sitting there at the table if I want to. I mean, I, I think there's an opportunity in some segments for this to be beneficial to both employer and employee. <laughs> And at the end of the day, right, this comes back to one simple thing that I've I've echoed for as long as because as long as I've I've been working in, in the news business, because to some degree we've always been doing remote work because you sometimes just have to go different places and do different things. If you are a, a manager or a business owner and you're saying while we're talking about this, oh no, that can't work for me. I need my employees to be there. And and they don't actually have a need to be there. You just don't trust that they won't work if they're not there. That's on you. You need to hire better people because that is a reflection of one, the people you're hiring, and two, a reflection of your management style, which is problematic absent of crisis. So that to me is is sort of the 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 reality that a lot of business owners and managers are going to have to face down when this is all over because at the end of the day like being in a physical place you know whether you're you're and let me let me put it this way one of the things that's that's kind of irked me over the years is is listening to people who are managers or operate business um, tie compensation to being in a physical place even if being in that physical place is the most irrelevant thing to the job at hand or the service being provided. That is like, that is in this digital age that we are firmly right. in now, that is completely asinine. That's a mid 20th century model right. that hasn't adapted itself to the information age. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all, one of the things we're all finding during this is different ways to do things. You know, why can't we do more Zoom meetings and, and fewer in-person meetings? And again, it's it's going to not, there, there's large segments of the economy that that's just not going to be possible. And I understand that. But <laughs> I think that can be a selling point when hiring employees. Mm-hmm. is and, and, you know, a lot of the companies that are considered the best to work for 
are some of the ones that take the reins off a little bit and say, we trust you. This is the output I need from you. And if I get it, I don't care when I get it. I mean, you know, some creative people do their best work at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if they want to do it and they get it done, then why should anybody care? Yeah. And it's interesting. We talked about, you know, what what sort of corporate expansion is going to look like. You know, is there this rebound where, where corporate folks go crazy, like building a bunch of real estate that they don't actually need? Um, I think you're going to see more responsible building. And I say that to this in this way. Take a look around your county, your town, your city, your village. How many Dunkin' Donuts have you seen close? How many Starbucks have you seen close? How many McDonald's have you seen close? I think there are companies in the service industry that have built responsibly or or created a physical footprint that doesn't outmatch what they actually need to put out. So like you look at a Starbucks or you look at a Dunkin' Donuts, you've got maybe what, like 30 seats plus, you know, like a, a walkthrough line, a pickup line, and then a drive-through. And the well, whole footprint is like what, maybe like, you know, 2,000, 3,000 right. square feet. I mean, that kind of development is something that I could see more compacted development rather than like these giant sprawling spaces that well, just aren't necessary. I, I found it interesting that the Geneva Walmart was one of the few to reuse the original space when they became a super Walmart, when all the groceries and everything came in. Almost every place else you go in Canandaigua, they built brand new. That's been, you know, that's something. Maybe that'll change. It it seems like the the emphasis has always been on building new instead of reusing existing spaces and and maybe keeping it small. The other thing I think you're going to see, too, and and how this shakes out, I think a lot of these work-at-home employees are not going to be employees anymore. I think they're going to be independent contractors where maybe they don't get the benefits they used to. You don't have, you know, the payroll tax, thing like that changes. So I, I think that's I, I think business owners, some business owners are going to see the opportunity to have it cost them less per employee by making them into contractors rather than employees. I and I, I think my only hesitation with that would be that given the power that we're seeing employees gain through this crisis, I would use Amazon as an example, the uh, collective bargaining power that these, and you look at some of the folks who are working in like actual like grocery stores and things like that, Wegmans workers, um, there have been some pretty big and powerful stories over the last seven to 10 days uh, about these employees basically standing up and saying, yeah, look, this is not going to fly. And I, I do think that there's an opportunity there. Um, when this is all over with, I think, one, the, the political will is going to be there. And I think, two, the human uh, will and capital is going to be there, too, to really make some pronounced changes in what in what that looks like. You might be able to get away with, with having more subcontractors, but guess what? I don't think there's going to be as much economic benefit to being a subcontractor and I mean through the political changes that, that take place after this is all said and done, as it is to, to just have them be a, a typical employee. Frankly, I'm not sure there will be a huge difference between a subcontractor and a, a traditional employee, especially when we fast forward into like 2021, 2022. It'll be interesting to watch because I, I'm of the belief, I've always said that there's a natural balance between the interests of the capitalist and the interests of the worker. Both need each other. 
And my feeling is that in recent years, that balance has swung way out of line towards the interests of the capitalist. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when a, a lot of the talk when this first broke out was, and especially from people on the right, which tends to be the pro-business people, was how can we help small business? And we weren't hearing so much, how can we help small business workers? So I think there does need to be a readjustment uh, in favor of the interests of the worker. And it'll be interesting to see, like you said, if there is the political will to make that happen. So I just want to uh, throw up on the screen right now uh, some of the county-by-county county numbers that we've, the, the latest numbers that we were able to pull last night. I've been updating this list every night, and I, my probably my biggest frustration, and obviously earlier we were talking about data, my biggest frustration so far through this whole thing has been the way different health departments have been presenting the information. Some are reporting total cases. Others are reporting active cases. Some are reporting how many folks have recovered. Others are not. Some are reporting how many people tested negative instead of reporting how many tests in total have been completed. And it varies completely by county. And it is the most aggravating part of this entire uh, ordeal, it feels like to me, as the one trying to like disseminate this information because people do care. If you live in Schuyler County, you damn well care what's happening in Yates County or in Seneca County because there are similarities. And, and it's just, it has been fascinating to watch the way these counties have gone about reporting things like this. This, in, and I'm a data hound, and let me tell you, like this is where the state should be flexing its muscle saying, hey, counties, this is how you report this information. This is specifically the data points you are going to release because we're also getting tons of emails from people saying, hey, I see one county is reporting where the, where the cases are, but other counties aren't, and they're saying they aren't going to release that information. And as a journalist, we can't give you a solid answer because all the state has said is you only have to release the demographic information in terms of age range and gender. There are like... There is just, there's so much unknown, even when you have all of this data sitting in front of you. Right. That it's just, you know, and, and the other thing that's that's interesting now is we're sort of seeing a plateau in active cases over the last two to three days in some counties. But that doesn't mean that like there aren't a lot of new cases being discovered every day or that there aren't new cases being discovered every day. It's just that the people who were discovered or the cases that were verified seven to 10 days ago are starting to go through the recovery loop. So it's just, there's so many, (coughs) excuse me, moving parts that it's, it's, it's a challenge. Well, and one of the things I cautioned early on and, and most of the cases have come up pretty recently, so it's not a huge factor, but that, most of the numbers we've seen have been seeing have been the cumulative numbers, which means you know I think the first case in New York was roughly two months, nine weeks or so ago. Again, the period on this is about two weeks. So when you have a cumulative number, that includes people who got sick on March first and are long since recovered. So it, and then furthermore, to to further make it tough to get numbers is. If I work in County X and I live in County Y, which county am I counted in? And what if I got it at work over here, but then I go home to recover? Who who gets counted? And and I understand what you're saying, but also it's it's asking a lot of tiny rural counties 
with limited resources to become data collection experts in a matter of a couple of weeks. So it's it does seem because I I in, I don't know if we have time to get into this or not. Uh, we were talking this morning about this website that gave social distancing scores all across the state. Oh, yes, and not only are the numbers lower upstate, but they're lower per capita. So Ontario County not only has fewer cases than Manhattan, as you might expect, but it has fewer cases per capita. So it, it's like you. I mean, I'm, I'm a, a, a numbers, data, science-driven kind of person. So, uh, it, But it, it is frustrating because I, I kept talking about this app on my phone, and there was the first case in Yates County, but according to my phone app, it's still... I don't think it's still shown that case. So there is a lag and different reporting procedures, you know, everywhere we go. And I guess at this point, you know, put your resources into getting people better. I mean, I'd like to have accurate numbers, but I understand that that may not be a, a priority for everybody right now. Well, two things. One, to that point, to the point you just made, I put up the, the list there. You got Ontario County and Tompkins County, who basically have the the best uh, the best rating, A minus and a straight B um, rating for how well people have been socially distancing themselves from others. Um, Wayne County, Steuben County, Cuga County all received Ds. Schuyler and Seneca County received Cs. And then uh, Yates County received a B. Well, and the problem <laughs> is their their methodology, to my mind, is suspect because it talks about one of the major criteria they use is how many miles you travel. Right. Well, guess what? People in rural areas, you know, we've been, we had this argument for years when the, when the downstate, some, remember a few years ago, some downstate legislator <clears throat> said they couldn't understand why more of us upstate didn't use mass transit. And somebody had to explain to them it's because we don't have any. You know, there's no bus that you can catch from Willard uh, into Waterloo for your doctor appointment. Or maybe there is, I don't mm-hmm. know, but on a very limited basis. So I, I thought that data was a little bit suspect. Um, I also saw today... And again, the, the information just flows in so fast, it's hard to keep track of where it's coming from. But I saw an article saying that social distancing tends to correlate with socioeconomic status, that the better off are more easily able to maintain these things than the less well off. Which is fascinating because that is one of the, the major questions that uh, I've got. A, I have a friend in, in uh, Florida who lives in Orlando. And he and I had this conversation. We've been sort of having this active conversation about what we're seeing in different places. And it's funny, like, he's from here. And and his early take was, you know, will this impact counties like Seneca or Yates or Schuyler the same way that it will impact places where people do interact and travel more? Because people who live in some of these more rural communities don't always leave those communities that often or that frequently. Right. Or when they do, they're going to, you know, if you live in South Seneca, maybe you're going to the grocery store in Seneca Falls or in Tompkins County. Or, you know, you're going, if you live in Yates County, maybe you're going to to the grocery store in Ontario County, but then you're going back and you're not going, you know, to you know a dozen different places every other day because you live in a place like Rochester or you live in a city like a more rural city like Geneva or Auburn where there's more opportunity to sort of go different places all the time so that's been one of the questions that I've had throughout this is will we ever get to a point where we see 
that sort of impact in rural communities. Now, the flip side of it is, is, and I'm throwing it up again just so people can see, is like, look at that right column, the number of tests that have been completed. You know, basically the best case scenario, I'm sure Monroe County here within a day or two is going to cross the 4,000 tested threshold. That's still a minuscule amount of tests to have right. been completed. Right, I don't completed. know what the population of Monroe County, I mean, what, I think it's around million? I, I think it's, I, I think it's a little around one. Okay. Um, but still, you're talking about a, a, just a, yeah. a pitiful amount of people. Schuyler County, 103 tested. Seneca County, 105 tested. You know, that is right now the, the issue that we can look back on and say, we did that wrong. Well, but I don't think it really benefits us until we have... Tests for literally every human, whether you have symptoms or not. I don't think testing is as valuable at this point as treatment and recovery is. Right. At you know. I think what we've had here is, I, I think we have in general a national failure to be prepared for the unexpected. I think we failed in Hurricane Katrina. I think we failed in Superstorm Sandy on Long Island and the coast, and I think we failed here. And I don't think it's a Donald Trump failure. I don't think it's an Andrew Cuomo failure. I don't think we need to portion the failure out left and right. I think just in general, we're not ready for much out of the ordinary here in the United States, and that needs to be part of the discussion going forward. Do we need to have a big national stockpile (laughs) of medical gear and medical supplies somewhere. Do we, you know, we have the, the infamous or famous FEMA trailers and, and, you know, did we get those out to the right places? It just seems like in general, we want to just go on living the way we live and we don't really have the will to think about the unthinkable. What would we do in this country if the internet went dead and there was no internet starting 10 minutes from now for the next month? What would we do? We'd be so far screwed, wouldn't we? I So to that end, I, I think whether you want to – so it, there's always a lot of emphasis, it seems, especially on the national scale, um, a lot of emphasis on whether it's the public sector doing it or whether it's the private sector doing it, whatever – that it is pick your it whether it's you know fixing roads whether it's building broadband out in rural places whether whatever it is pick your pick your poison and i think we're finally to a point now where we've seen scale enough that i'm i'm hopeful that no matter what on the other side of this we're going to see a build out of a whole bunch of different types of infrastructure if there we was have actually, 10 million the, people, the president raised that issue the other day. He he called for, I believe, I think it was the president, called for uh, a significant infrastructure improvement. But you, you, you mentioned about private versus uh, government. That's why I thought it was fascinating when the governor ordered hospitals to have a 50% increase in their capacity or face state takeover. And the first question that came to my mind is, you mean they're not doing that anyway? I mean, were they not? Do we know? what? Why in the world, in the middle of this outbreak, would every hospital not immediately ramp up its capacity? Although now, on the other hand, we're hearing the story today that hospitals are suffering financially because they're not doing any of the electives that they would normally be doing. 
But I, I guess, you know, that's we were talking about this before we went on the air. Uh, back in World War II, we very quickly converted a huge amount of our industrial capacity to the military. We put in place sugar rationing and gasoline rationing and all this different rationing with booklets and cards. And how were we able to do that in the 1940s and here in the information age it just seems to take forever. We're talking about 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks to get Navy hospital ships in place. How is it that we're just so seemingly unready to do those things? And and to get, you know, I I said this morning on my show that I, I would love to see the president stand up in front of the American people and say, I want a vaccine for this thing, and I want it two months from now, go, do it. I, I, I think back to basically um, any small organization that I've ever been involved with, and you get, say, a half dozen or a dozen people sitting around a table, board table, whatever the case may be, and they're talking about all these great ideas that they have, and they come with the best intentions, and everyone is making all of these recommendations and suggestions in good faith. But then when it comes time for implementation, we suffer greatly in doing. And at the end of the day, that is what it comes down to. When we look back at this, it's, it's purely a lack of doing for 30 years. But that's where, that's where leadership that's how we got here. comes into place. That's because you hit it on the head. I've seen that in my business over the years, and I'm sure you've seen it in yours. Right. There's a million ideas and, you know, you can't get two people to agree on any one. That's where the the authority figure has to step in and say, this is the plan. This is the idea we're going with. And and again, I I don't mean to make it political. I'm not I don't blame the president. I don't blame the governor. Uh, You you know, we got the whole interplay back and forth between the states. I I posted a post on social media the other day that states hate federal interference, but they love federal help. Yep. You know, I but I just for whatever reason we just seem not to have that national will. Or or another example I keep using is John F. Kennedy in 1960 challenging us to get to the moon in 10 years, and no one had any idea how to do it, but they figured it out. There was that will. This is important. I mean, is there anything more important than getting rid of this thing as fast as we can? Not at the moment. But yet. <laughs> Then, then how come we aren't? And I don't know. If I knew the answer, I could run for president. That would be interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Where can how do you folk... run for anything now when you can't shake hands? <laughs> I know, right? You have to bump elbows. <laughs> uh, so actually, to that end, I'm glad you, I'm glad you made that point. Uh, I interviewed uh, Leslie Danksburg. She's running uh, for Senate in the 58th District. She's going to challenge Senator Tom O'Mara, um, who we always get plenty of press releases from, uh, even when there is a quarantine. Uh, and that episode of Inside the Finger Lakes is going to be dropping tomorrow morning, so definitely check that out. Uh, she talked about that and, and what campaigning looks like now that you can't really campaign the way campaigns have worked for the last 30 to 40 years. Um, but uh, at any rate, Ted, where can folks listen to you Monday through Friday? On the Finger Lakes Morning News in Geneva, that's on WGVA 95.1 and 1240. In Auburn, it's WAUB, that's 98.5 and 1590. 
The show is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, as well as YouTube. Visit www.fingerlakes1.com slash debrief to check out archived episodes or to leave us a message. For my guests in studio and the rest of the FO1 News team, have a great weekend, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>